So we're continuing in our Christ as King series. And last week, we heard Dave speak to us about instruction, instructing your children. Christ is King over your children. And we're looking at that in two parts. Last week was instruction. This week is discipline. And so last week, Dave talked to us about how we instruct our children in the fear of the Lord as God instructs his children. And I really loved the emphasis that David put on the fear of the Lord and how the fear of the Lord isn't just a reverence for him in the way that you reverence a king or the way that you reverence somebody of high esteem in the world. There really is a terrifying sense in which we should fear him. Because every time in the scriptures when someone saw the glorified and, and, and the, the God in his eternal state, the glorified Lord Jesus Christ, not veiled in flesh, but exalted, they fell down at their feet as though dead. And so that's the posture that we should have in our heart. And it's foundational for our obedience. It's foundational for our instructing of our children and their obedience. And it's foundational for our discipline. So God's always teaching, training, and instructing his children. And so we should do. And that's the positive, the positive proactive side of training children. And then the, the discipline is really the negative reactive side in a sense. And God's always disciplining, reproving, and chastising his children. And so we must do to ours likewise. And I want to start there, and in order to start there, I'd like to look together with you at Hebrews chapter 12. So turn to Hebrews chapter 12, and then we'll pray and ask the Lord's blessing and begin. I encourage you, if you don't do this, if you don't bring a paper Bible with you, do so. I always love listening to Grace Community Church, John MacArthur, and he says, everybody turn in your Bibles to so-and-so, and you just hear, there's just thousands of pages flipping. It's amazing. Okay, let's pray together. Father, we do look to you. We look to you as God our Father, the great eternal Father, our example, and the one who is the perfect father towards us, always instructing just as needed, always disciplining just as needed. And we want to fear you rightly as we should. You are a tender and a loving father, and you're a, a fearful and a terrifying king over all the earth. And only you, by your spirit, can hold that Hold those two things, the lion and the lamb, in suspense in our hearts. And so we pray that you would give us a, a more accurate and a right conception of you this morning as we look to these examples in your word and see what you have to say about yourself and that you would give us a more accurate understanding and a more faithful obedience in instructing our children and disciplining our children the way that you discipline us so that we can be faithful to represent you well and so that we can be faithful to walk in obedience to what you've required of us and so that it may be well with us and with our children in generations to come that your kingdom 
would come and your will be done on earth the way it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. So Hebrews chapter 12, <clears throat> prior to that is the famous Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith. All these examples of men and women who lived by faith, and they did this by faith, and this by faith, and this by faith, and this by faith, and this is what it looked like. And after that, the author concludes in chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And this is it. He's quoting Proverbs chapter 3. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Or another translation says, do not despise. Do not despise the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have been partakers, then you are illegitimate children. Or the King James translates that word as bastards. You are bastards. And I say that not to be vulgar, but to give you the full import of the word. It means ch fatherless children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later... Or afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it or exercised, the King James says, those who have been exercised by it. I keep kicking this book. <clears throat> so a few observations about this passage as we look back at it. It's assumed that fathers discipline their children. It's taken for granted. It's just a given. It says in verse 7, what son is there whom his father does not discipline? It's a rhetorical question. Of course there's no son who the father doesn't discipline. It's just how it is. And then verse 8, it says, it talks about discipline. And it says, in which all have been partakers. We've all been partakers of it. All of we who've had earthly fathers, we've been partakers in discipline. And we've all been partakers, if we're true children of God, in his discipline. Because fathers discipline their children. It's a given. In fact, we see from verse 8 that the necessity of a father's discipline is so great that if he neglects it, the child is a functional bastard. In other words, so significant and impactful 
is a father's discipline on a child that if he neglects to discipline the child, it's as though the child didn't have a father. That's how critical it is, how weighty it is, how important it is. If you are left without discipline, then you're illegitimate children, not sons. You're fatherless. We see that discipline is a sign of love. It says in verse 6 that the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And that when he's doing it, he's treating you as sons, verse 7. We see that discipline is a long-term investment. Four times in this text, the word endurance is used. Two times, not growing weary. So, and then at the end, in verse 11, it says, for the moment, and then later. So there's something for the moment, and then there's something later afterward. So endurance is required both by the one disciplining and by the one being disciplined because it's long-term. It's not immediate. We'll come back to that a little more later. For the moment, discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Verse 11, take note, it should be painful. And we're going to see how it is so with God shortly. But God's purpose in discipline isn't just pain for the sake of pain. It says that it's for our good, that we may share in his holiness. Our good, our holiness is his purpose, verse 10. And then in verse 11, the outcome of discipline is the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Afterward, that's afterward. Not in the moment, but afterward. If you notice, we didn't read this part, but later down in verse 17, afterward is used again. Two times that's used in this passage. In verse 17, and it starts talking about Esau. It says, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So there's two options. You're disciplined well, and you respond to it well, and afterward there's the peaceful fruit of righteousness, or you're not disciplined, or you don't respond to it well, then you end up like Esau. With tears, trying to repent, you can't. So God is the ultimate father, and the model of discipline is plain in this passage. We discipline our children because God disciplines us. That's the foundation. That's where I want to start and look at some examples of that. God disciplines his children. God disciplines his children. This is not popular. Even among Christians, it's sort of like a taboo thing that I think many people are afraid to talk about or afraid to think about. It's something that we largely ignore in the Bible how frequently and how severely God disciplines his children, but it's pervasive. You can't miss it unless you willfully do so. It's all throughout the Bible. And so when, because we do that, because we neglect to really consider what the Bible says and to look at the picture that the Bible paints of God as Father, we have this conception of him as, dare I say, a good, good father, where 
And by that I mean just that he's only tender, he's only gentle, he's only welcoming, he's just only approachable in, in a casual sort of way. There's nothing to be terrified of. There's nothing to be fearful of. We discard the holiness for the, the sake of only considering the gentleness and the tenderness. But that's not the picture that the Bible paints. He is warm and approachable under the blood of Christ. When we come to him through the new and living way which he's consecrated, then we can come to him boldly because of Christ, but we don't come to him flagrantly. He's still mighty and terrifying. He's a righteous king, and he has a standard that he expects of his royal subjects. I don't know if you've ever met uh, an, an older man, a father or a grandfather, and, 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 and some men carry this kind of presence where you know that they're, they're tender and they're warm, but you're a little bit afraid of what they're going to say. You're a little bit afraid of what they're going to say based on what you say. You, you don't want to cross them because you don't exactly know. You know there's power there. You know that they're strong, and you know that they're not going to put up with nonsense. I always love meeting men like that, older men in particular, because I feel that it, that it paints a really accurate picture of God our Father because there's a tender and a gentle side and there's a, a fierce and a terrifying side. And that's the picture that we see in the Bible over and over, especially when you look in the Old Testament, which is where we're going to look even now. So there are two, two kinds of discipline or two aspects of discipline. There's discipline as training and testing in the sense that you would discipline yourself to go to the gym or you would discipline yourself to train for a race or you would discipline yourself to become proficient at a trade or something like that and then, or to build a skill or whatever else. And then there's discipline in the sense of reproof and correction for doing something wrong. And then beyond that, there's, there's two ways that the Lord deals with his people he deals with his people corporately as a singular body, as we see so much in the Old Testament with Israel, but also in the New Testament with the church. And then there's the individual. He deals with people, individual people and their discipline. So some examples of training and testing in the corporate sense. One is Israel wandering in the wilderness. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 8, it says that the Lord led them in the wilderness to test them and know what was in their heart. Which is interesting when you consider in Proverbs that it says foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child and a rod of discipline drives it far from him. So, so there's a sense in which discipline drives what's out of the heart, what's in the heart, out of the heart, and then there's a, a sense in which discipline reveals what's in the heart. It says later in that passage, Deuteronomy 8, as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. Another example, a corporate example of training and testing is Israel warring and taking possession of the land, in Can of, the land of Canaan that the Lord had given to them, had promised to them. 
and that was to see whether they would believe God's promise, whether they would believe that God really had given it and they really could take it. It was to train them in the obedience of faith. I have given this to you. I've said it so. Will you go and act accordingly as though you believe what I've said? And then there are examples of training and testing an individual. Like Abraham and the sacrifice of Isaac. And the Lord commands him to go and to sacrifice his own son. And then there's Joseph and his imprisonment. With his brothers, everything he went through with his brothers and the long imprisonment, and the Lord puts him through all that. He's putting him through discipline. He's proving what's in his heart, and he's driving things out of his heart at the same time. But I really want to focus here for a moment on discipline as reproof and as correction. And some examples of that in the individual sense. One is Moses and his the prohibition of God from allowing him to enter into the promised land. It says that he wasn't allowed to enter into the land because he disobeyed and disbelieved the Lord and he struck the rock twice. The Lord told him to strike the rock once and so that water would flow out and he struck the rock twice. Now, if you hear that and you think, well, that seems a little severe, then that just proves that you're thinking carnally. And I've thought the same way. We all do this. We look at these, these things issued by God, these disciplinary actions issued by him, and we think, well, that seems harsh, Lord. That seems severe. And it's because we have a man-centered view of sin, and we don't see it for the high treason that it is against God. In fact, it was actually merciful of God that he didn't destroy Moses right there. It was merciful of God that he didn't take his physical life and then cast his soul into hell. For eternity, because that's what the sin was worthy of. The wages of sin is death. But actually, he let him see the land from afar off, notwithstanding that sin that he committed. Another example of the Lord's individual discipline, reproof, and correction was with David, Bathsheba, and Uriah. And I want you to turn there. To look at those consequences, the disciplinary consequences that the Lord issued through the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel 12. And we're going to read some of it and make a few observations. It says in 2 Samuel 12, verse 9, this is after Nathan had come in, he had told this story, and David tied himself in a knot. And then Nathan says, that you're, you're the one who's guilty. You're the one who's guilty. David gets angry at the person in the story, and, David, and Nathan says, you're the one in the story. And then Nathan says what his discipline and the consequences will be, in, beginning in verse 9. He says, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, 
I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of the house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. And so on and so forth. I won't read the rest. The Lord repays every man according to his works and according to the fruit of his deeds. Now, in mercy, not in the fullness of what his works and his deeds were worthy of here, because they were worthy of death, just like Moses. They were worthy of death, and the mercy of the Lord is when he said, again, it's the, same, it's the same thing when you hear this. If you think that seems harsh, the Lord would really afflict a child and kill a child? The Lord would really do all this to David's wives? The Lord would really bring the sword upon his house? Yes, yes, the Lord would do that, and he did. And it's not unmerciful or ungracious of him. He repays every man according to his works and according to the fruit of his deeds. Verses 9 and 10, it talks about the sword. He had Uriah killed with the sword, and, and the Lord says, The sword will now be upon your house. And then he committed adultery with Uriah's wife Bathsheba. And the Lord says, Now this is going to happen to your wives. You did it in secret. I'll do it in the open. And we see that the Lord actively disciplines his children. There's, you know, some people like to say, well, the Lord, he's, he permits these things to happen. He permits bad things to happen. He's sovereign. He allows it to happen, but he doesn't do bad things. But that's not what the text says here. It says in verse 15, the Lord afflicted the child. Presently, an active action by the Lord. So his discipline is frightful. His discipline is painful. But his discipline is fruitful. It's painful. If you look at the chapters after this and you see all that happened in David's life, the Lord wasn't joking when he said these things. He was being serious. You see all the suffering and the hardship and the pain that David went through, the sword upon his house, all the family difficulties and all these things that happened to him. The Lord was faithful to bring that discipline upon him. But it was fruitful. It was fruitful. If you look at Psalm 51 then you see what happened to David's heart after this, and he was broken and contrite before the Lord. And that's what the Lord was after. And that's what the Lord is after in discipline. He's not disciplining for the sake of causing pain just for pain's sake, but for our good that we may share in his holiness. And the reason that that's the case is because of the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the cross that turns all that would be to destroy us into 
things that sanctify us. It turns all pain and suffering and hardship into servants to sanctify us. That's what it says in Romans 8. When it talks about us, that he works all things together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. And then it gives the golden chain and talks about our sanctification in Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And people, you know, you like to take that passage and make it be so feel good and warm and fuzzy. And it is that in a sense. But also what it is is that all of the pain and the hardship and the suffering and everything that's listed in that passage, the sword, the famine, the pestilence, everything, God doesn't just remove those things altogether. No, it's those things that he uses in order to fulfill that golden chain and to conform us into the image of his dear son. He takes all of that pain and hardship and difficulty and through the cross makes those things servants for our sake. That's his mercy and discipline. Those things which would have separated us now sanctify us. And lastly, some corporate examples of God's reproof, correction, discipline in that sense. There's the story of, of the people of Israel testing the Lord. It says putting him to the test and grumbling against him when they first came into the wilderness. And the Lord has given them manna from heaven. They said, we want meat. So the Lord says, okay, I'll give you meat. And it says that they had quail until it was coming out of their nostrils. And they choked on it and died. Sometimes, I mean, I think we read this stuff sometimes and we just somehow dismiss it that it was under the old covenant or we just don't really think about it. But this was God doing this to his people, dealing with them for their sins. He's not different now than he was then. I'm the Lord, I change not. There's the wilderness wanderings. It was an 11-day journey that took 40 years. It took 40 years. And it said that it was because they approached the land and they went in to look at it and they said, there's no way we can do that. And God says, okay, every one of you who said that will die in the wilderness, and I'll make your children wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And then they'll come into the land. And, and so there were those who couldn't enter into the land, enter into his rest because of unbelief. All the parents died. Only the children 20 years old and below were the ones who came into the land. There's Achan and the battle of Ai. This one man, Achan, he had... Some of the devoted things that the Lord had forbidden them to take in his tent. They went into the battle of Ai, thought it would be a piece of cake, easy, no problem. And they're shamed in defeat. And 20-something people were killed. And they say, what happened? And Joshua inquires of the Lord. And the Lord said, there's some of the devoted things in your midst. And the Lord disciplined the entire nation for this one man's sin. And then you can look at the captivity in Babylon during Jeremiah's day. The whole book of Jeremiah talks about the destruction of the city, exile, death by sword, famine, and pestilence, even those who weren't guilty of worshiping idols and, and false gods, they were still sent into exile as part of the Lord's discipline. I, won't, I don't have time to read all this, but mark it down, and I encourage you to read it later in Proverbs chapter 1. Verses 20 through 23. I'm, I'm sorry, 20 through 33. Proverbs 1, 20 through 33. And it's wisdom personified and speaking. She's speaking. And she's saying some very harsh things. 
seemingly harsh. Anyway, go and look at those. Another one you can look at is Psalm 89, when it talks about the Davidic covenant and what will happen to those who break the Davidic covenant and who, who transgress the Lord's law, how he'll deal with them. It says that he'll punish them for their transgression, but he won't remove his covenant. Now that's good news. That's good news. So, so we want to just go on one end of the spectrum or the other and say, well, no, he's, he's going he's gonna to punish and he's going to take away his steadfast love. Or we come over here and say, well, he would never do something so harsh like that. No, he will punish and do very painful things, but he will not forsake his covenant and he will not remove his steadfast love. Those are held in suspense. So, the Lord disciplines his children. It's clear. Those are just, I mean, the whole Bible and the whole Testament is replete with examples. Those are just a few. But that's the foundation. That's the foundation of why we discipline our children, because the Lord disciplines his children. We want to walk in his ways, and we want to accurately reflect him towards our children. So we discipline because he disciplines And I want to look a little more closely at what it looks like for us to discipline our children faithfully. It is primarily the responsibility of the father to discipline. We see that from the Hebrews 12 passage, and we also see that throughout the Bible. Father's the head of the household. He's responsible for the obedience of the household to the Lord's commands. He's responsible for walking in the Lord's ways and leading his household to do the same. So it's primarily the responsibility of the father. You say, well, this is Mother's Day. Why are you talking to the fathers? (laughs) Well, because if the father is faithfully doing so, then it will help the mother unspeakably. So this is me preaching to your husband so that you don't have to violate biblical commands and try to nag them. Now, fathers can delegate discipline to the wife as necessary. Of course, when the father's providing, working, whatever else, you delegate that to the, the mother. There should be special discipline for dishonoring the mother from the father. And the father should be principally concerned with dealing with disciplinary issues after being out of the house as a matter of first importance. You see that picture of the world of the father comes home and picks up the newspaper and goes, whatever, turn the TV on, you know, just kind of relax. I'm tired. I've been at work all day. That's not the way it should be with us. First thing, is there anything I need to deal with, sweetheart? Is there any, anything that happened today that I need to deal with? How are you? How are the children? Are there any issues that need to be dealt with? So why we discipline our children more on that. Why do we discipline our children? As I said, it's reflective of the character and the ways of Father God. It's to teach them obedience to us, to teach them obedience to God, and to teach them the consequences for disobedience. Because the consequences when a child is young and small are trivial, somewhat trivial, usually a fall, a, a, a mild injury, you know, something like that. The consequences when children are old, especially growing into adulthood, are devastating. It can mean jail time 
or it can be the destruction of their life or the destruction of another life. And the consequences of disobedience in eternity are damning. And that is principally why discipline is such a critical issue. Because we teach them that a lifetime of disobedience leads to eternal hell. So just as in the Hebrews 12 passage, we saw that it's a, it's a long-term game. We're after the long-term outcome in discipline. We discipline not just for our convenience in the moment so that they don't do things that bother us. We discipline as a long, with a long-term view, a long-term outcome, so that they'll learn to avoid the path of evil and its consequences, which, as I said, culminates in eternal destruction if that's over the course of a lifetime and it's perpetual living in sin and disobedience. We teach them to avoid the path of evil. We teach them so that they'll find the path of life and bear the peaceful fruit of righteousness. What's the first commandment with a promise? Children, honor your father and your mother that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. We teach them for the sake of of behavior and practical outcomes. It trains the heart, it affects behavior, and it should look like these practical outcomes. Respectful, self-controlled, and honorable children. There's a reason that having children in all subjection and ruling your household well is a requirement for deacons and elders. So children, all, but all children should look like that. Not just the children of deacons and elders. That's to set an example for all in the church. All children should look like that of believers. They should display immediate obedience to instructions, obeying right away and all the way and with a glad heart. There should be a healthy fear of the parents and a healthy fear of the Lord. It leads to a healthy family. It leads to healthy and well-adjusted adults. You can always tell when you look at adults, whether they were disciplined as children. And many times how they were disciplined, the frequency with which they were disciplined, what the discipline looked like, what they were disciplined for or not disciplined for. But ultimately, we discipline children for the long-term outcome that they will be used by God for the advancement of his kingdom. And so I want to give a picture of how, how we discipline our children. I want to make this practical because I think that we're afraid to talk about this or there's just so many things going on in life that we don't talk about it a lot. There are six passages in Proverbs that deal with the rod. That's God's tool for disciplining children, the rod. It says... I won't go through all of them because I don't have time. But a few, it says, whoever spares the rod hates his son. Hates his son. Whoever spares the rod hates his son is what God says. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him, careful and intentional and purposeful. It's a focal point. It's not just a secondary or casual thing, an afterthought. 
It's a principal thing that a father does and a mother does. Proverbs 13, 24, Proverbs 19, 25, Proverbs 20, verse 30, Proverbs 22, 15, Proverbs 23, 13 through 14, Proverbs 29, 15 through 19. Those are all the passages that mention the rod. Somebody says, well, that's just a metaphor. Well, what is it a metaphor for? It's, it's not something good. It's sort of like I hear, I've heard people say, you know, that's... A worse version of that is hell is just a metaphor. Well, I don't know what it's a metaphor for, but it's intended to be a metaphor for something very bad. So uh, uh, generally when people say either one of those two things, it's an attempt to lighten the severity of what's being communicated. But whatever it is that it's a metaphor for and that God is attempting to communicate, it's not something that's a trifle. It's something that's severe. So... Discipline with the rod, discipline early and often. And by early, I mean not young, although I'll get to that, but I mean at the first sign of sin, immediately. Immediately when you see bad attitude, when you see the, the beginnings of disobedience, don't wait for multiple offenses. Discipline every occurrence and be consistent, not capricious. Always discipline for the same thing in the same way and always discipline for that thing. Don't discipline for it sometimes and not other times. It, it sends confusing and mixed signals to the child. Start younger than you think you should. Small children's sins tend to be cute when they're young, but they're not cute when they're older. As I heard uh, Doug Wilson say, or I read this, he said, he was talking about Dave Rubin and his... <coughs> his gay partner and how they had adopted this child or these two children in this totally perverse scenario. And he said, feel sorry for the children now because you won't 15 years from now. It's, you feel sorry for them when they're young, but once that has taken root and you begin to see the fruit of those actions as they become into adulthood, you won't feel sorry for them anymore because the sins aren't cute then. Anything that's sinful for an adult is sinful for a child. If you see sin in a child, don't say, well, they're not old enough to be reproved or corrected for that. Oh, yes, they are. Yes, they are. Don't wink at sin. The roots grow and habits form very quickly, and they're very difficult to uproot once they've gone down deep. Give consequences that appropriately match the offense. There's sort of a, uh, I have like a tiering system that I think of. There are accidents and honest mistakes those things shouldn't be disciplined for. You don't discipline a child for, you know, being clumsy, spilling something. And you don't, you, not even with words. This is very difficult for me because I get the messes frustrate me and everything, you know, spilled this, spilled that. But you, if you discipline for that stuff, it confuses them when you discipline for genuine wrongdoing. So you don't discipline for that. But then above that, there's forgetfulness of duties and responsibilities. And there should be some grace and understanding of their that they're dust and for how young they are reminding them you know besides just oh you didn't pick up your room we'll go to the bathroom you're getting a spanking maybe a reminder you know they need reminding they need to form the habits and then above that there's disobedience to household rules and the distinction should be made between household rules and god's rules that you know like don't jump on the couch 
Well, that's not a rule that's in the law of God. That's something that I've seen fit to establish in my own household. And if I establish it, then they should abide by it. But they shouldn't be disciplined with the same severity as if they transgress one of God's explicit commands. And so that's really the next tier. There's disobedience to household rules. And above that, there's more severe disobedience to God's rules, what's explicitly outlined here. And then at the, the highest level, there's what I call high treason. And that's things like defiance. No! That is a capital offense. That's the highest of the high where you, there is zero tolerance for that. There should be zero tolerance for that because that is the sin of sins. It's the pride and arrogance, not just towards you, but towards God. Defiance, disrespect, lying, things like that should warrant the most severe disciplinary consequences. So let me give you a template. Let me give you a template. This is what I do at my house, and I hope it will be helpful for you. <clears throat> at the beginning, you can ask probing questions. When my children do something wrong, I say, go to, go to the bathroom. That's our place. Go to the bathroom. But wherever you go, go to your room, go wait on me, and I'll come, and we'll talk about this. And I ask them, what did you do wrong? Why was it wrong? I don't just ask, why did you do this? Why did you? I'm not... Sometimes I'm interested in that question because I want to know, why, why did you do this? Like, what were you thinking when you did this? And I'm trying to probe and understand to help address the sin that's at the root of it. But mainly I want them, I want to ask the question for them to understand, what did you do wrong so that they say it with their mouths? Why was that wrong? And how will you act differently next time? <clears throat> After that, use corrective words. From scripture. You can use all different types of scripture. You can, use, you can correct from historical narrative. You can correct from the law and the commandments. You can correct from the Proverbs. You can correct from parables and the words of Christ. But use repetition. Use the same passages to correct for the same types of sins. Because it helps them memorize it. And it helps them understand it. And assimilate it into their heart. But this, this is really as much for, the, for, for you and me as it is for them. Because you learn to navigate the word of God so much more proficiently as you're using it as a tool to correct and to discipline and to address different topics. So after that, then there's the, the actual spanking, which should be commensurate with the offense. It should be hard enough to cause real tears, not this just pop, you know, on top of the, on top of the diaper, on top of the pants where they just kind of, oh, and that's just a joke. That doesn't do anything. H hard enough to cause real tears, but gentle enough not to bruise or leave any marks. The goal is stinging pain, not injury. It's a stinging pain to, to understand this is the consequence for disobedience, to deter them from doing it again. Because children don't understand consequence. And, and you, that's what I mean when, you say, when I say you, you can tell if an adult, if they were disciplined as a child, because you can see when adults don't understand consequence. They do things with flagrant disregard for what the consequence will be either to themselves or to others. They never learned it as a child. But one of the principal things that spanking 
teaches children is there are negative consequences when I perform this action. And it's the same thing that God does. When you transgress and disobey his law, there are negative consequences for it. And his consequences are usually worse than mine. And after that, there should be a comforting and recovery period. Do not deprive children of consolation after the discipline. Like, no, I'm, I can't hug you right now because you're in trouble. No, the discipline has been issued. Now you come and I will comfort you and I will console you. But wait until they display contrition to proceed. It's fruitless if you just do that and then they obligatory, they come and hug you and then they go through the rest of the motions and go on their way. No, you have to discern as the parent is there real contrition? Is there brokenness and humility in their heart that you can see in their eyes? And if there's not, then wait for it. So you go over here, wait in your room, whatever, until you're ready. And then offer assurance of pardon. That if any assurance of pardon, many in the Bible, but I offer the one that we do here to my kids, I say, if you confess, because it's so helpful for them, men, men, much of the reluctance from children to confess their sins is because they don't really know and understand and believe that they'll be forgiven if they confess it. They think if they, they try to cover it with fig leaves, they think if they confess it, it's going to make it worse. No, no, I say, I say, what kind of sins are forgiven to my kids? Confessed sins. Confessed sins. If we confess our sins, then he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Whoever conceals his sin will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes it will find mercy. I use that one a lot too. And then require that they ask forgiveness. Require that they ask forgiveness of God in prayer. If they're not old enough to do it, then lead them in it. Teach them how to do it, how to ask forgiveness. And then they should ask forgiveness from the one offended, whether it's you whether it's a sibling, a friend, whatever. And then just briefly, uh, oh, and, and lastly, before briefly, let them know that it's resolved and there's a restoration of peace in the relationship. One of the most damaging things to children is there being a constant angst because they feel tension. There's unresolved conflict. They've done something wrong and they haven't dealt with it. Their conscience is weighing on them. Or they've transgressed you and you haven't forgiven them for it. And there's frustration. You don't want that in the household. Deal with it. Get it out of the way. Expunge it by the blood of Christ. And then it's over. And there's a re restoration of peace in the relationship. Both between them and God and between them and you. They need to know that. Uh, I, lest I be accused of plagiarism uh, and for your edification, I highly recommend this book, Standing on the Promises by Doug Wilson. That's where I got a lot of my thinking and method of discipline, and there's a lot more detail in here if you're interested in that. Now, obviously, this process is going to look considerably different as children age, as they get older. You don't want to spank a 16-year-old. <laughs> it's embarrassing for them and for you, and it's really, it's, it, it wounds their dignity, and that's not what you're after in discipline. So then you have to be more creative with 
giving consequences that fit the offense, as we talked about earlier. I'm not quite there yet. I'm getting there. I'm getting pretty close with my oldest. Creative consequences. But just briefly, as we close, I want to address two main errors in discipline. One is neglecting discipline. And there are various reasons for that. It's either unbelief. Well, this is too harsh. I can't spank my kids. That's too harsh. God would never do that. Well, that's just flat wrong, as we've seen from the scriptures. Oh, that's not necessary. I'll deal with it in this way or that way or or redirection. That's the big thing in in the world these days, you know, redirecting children. Not going to discipline them and correct them or tell them that's wrong. We'll just redirect their attention somewhere else. But that's unbelief in God's method. Or there's laziness and apathy. Laziness among mothers, wives, you're too busy with other things, with daily tasks. You've got a million things you're doing. You don't have time to stop and to discipline. You must make the time. You must make the time. No matter what it does to the rest of the schedule or the other things on your agenda, this is a critical thing. And husbands, likewise, you get home, you're tired from work, you relegate discipline to your wife, you don't want to deal with that, you don't have time to deal with that, you have to fix this thing, deal, deal with that thing. No, no. Those things can wait if you love your children. Because if you neglect and spare the rod, then you hate them. Don't hate them. Love them with your action. Then another big one is the praise of man. You didn't know that this could be operative in the household, did you? Jesus said this to the Pharisees. You love the praise of men more than the praise of God. And a lot of parents love the praise of their children more than the praise of God because they think, if I discipline my children, they won't like me. They won't like me. I I had somebody say to me recently, they said, uh, well, my husband tried to spank one of our children, and he ran away and said, Daddy's so mean. I said, well, what did you expect him to do? If you never spanked him, he's three years old, four years old, of course he's going to respond like that. But you persevere and press through that because it's God's program. And you, and you entrust the result to God and not say, well, my children aren't going to like me. Well, they might not like you for the time, for the moment, but it's a long term. It's afterward. Afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Or maybe you're discouraged. It's a big reason. It's not working. I've been doing this for months, weeks, months, years. I'm not seeing fruit. I'm not seeing a result. It's long-term, long, and God doesn't tell us how long. Long. I always meditate on Galatians 6, 9. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap. We will, if we don't lose heart, if we don't give up. Consider how long it takes God to discipline on us on a matter. Even on a particular thing, a particular bad habit, a particular sin struggle you have. How many years it takes for God to deal with you on it? How many times you have to be disciplined? How many times you ignore his discipline? You reject it, you despise it, and he has to find creative ways to discipline you differently. And then think that it's the same with you and your children. So neglecting discipline is one error. The other is disciplining and anger. And this is the last thing that I'll say. And this is arguably worse than neglecting. I don't know. Maybe they're the same. It's really one ditch or the other. But disciplining either when you lose your patience, when you just reach your tipping point, and you can't handle anymore. And that's really more for you than it is for them. 
I said to somebody, I was, was talking to a group of people one time, and they said, how do you get your children to do this? They were so amazed, you know, because I have so many children, and they had one, and he, and he was just a terror. I mean, he ran the household, and they said, oh, I'm never having any more kids. I was like, well, I wouldn't have any more either if I parented like you did. <laughs> but he said, how do you get your children to, to obey, how to do that? I said, oh, I spanked them. And, every, and I was in a group of people, and they're all just like, you know, everybody, very progressive, very uh, hostile towards God and Christianity, and they're all just, silence falls over the group. And I said, yeah, I mean, I, I don't do it in anger, I, but I, I spank them when they do wrong to teach them this wrong. And then another person feeling uncomfortable with the quiet awkwardness said, oh, I do that sometimes too. You know, I just can't handle it when it gets to a certain point. And I was like, well, I don't, that's not what I mean. That's not how I discipline my children. I don't wait until I can't tolerate it anymore and do it out of anger just so that they'll stop. And I explained to them the process, that it's restorative. It's not punitive as much as it is restorative. So anger never works. It says in James 1.20 that anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And it never will. If you discipline your children in anger, it will damage them emotionally and it will produce rebelliousness rather than repentance. It will do the opposite of what you're aiming for. Anger is a really good alert to disobedience. And it is a really terrible tool to deal with it. It's a great alert because you know, you, usually when you get angry, it's because they did something that was, they transgressed what you said. They crossed the line. And, but, so it's a good indicator. Okay, now I know I need to deal with this, but I need to control myself. I need to control my spirit and not deal with it in anger. So don't neglect. Don't discipline anger. And I would redirect you at last to Psalm 66. It was already read. And just one passage out of that. You guys can c- come back up, Elijah. It says in verse 8, Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. And the last line, Yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. That's God's goal. And that should be our goal for our children, ultimately. Bring them out to a place of abundance. Psalm 94.12 says, Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. So he disciplines us perfectly that we may share in his holiness. And may we be those who discipline our children in like manner that they may bear the peaceful fruit of righteousness as they're exercised and trained by it. Let's pray. Father, what can we say to these things? We approach you with reverence and fear and terror because of your holiness and because of our sinfulness before you. And truly, for just a single transgression, we're worthy of eternal death at your hand. We confess that we have such a low and shallow and carnal conception of sin, transgression, and iniquity against you. And correspondingly, we have such an unclear and 
dim view of your glory and your majesty and your holiness. We pray that you would enlighten our eyes and that you would give us a clear picture, give us a greater conviction of our sin, and give us a greater sight and view of your holiness. And we thank you that you are working towards that end in all of your discipline towards us. You're working to give us a greater a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. You're working to correct our sinful hearts, to sanctify us. You're working to, for our good. You're working so that we might share in your holiness and we might yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And I pray for every parent in the room that we would be cut and convicted, that we would be encouraged and inspired and strengthened by these words and by the picture that you've painted for us of how you deal with disobedience and discipline and that we would deal with our children in like manner and in a way that is accurately reflective of your heart and your character and your ways. And we pray for your blessing on all of our children, that you would raise them up to be godly, godlier than we are, and that you would make them to yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness, that they would be holy, sanctified, set apart as vessels for your use, and that you would use them here in this town, wherever we go from here, if we leave, for the building, of, the building up of the body of itself in love and the extension and growth of your kingdom here on earth. May your kingdom come, Lord, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven as we walk in the obedience of faith towards you in disciplining our children and so honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.